I can't get a mulligan because then we'd have to start all over and then you guys would really. First aid jitters, right? Oh, look, my W9. Anyway, things you carry in your Bible, tax forms, sermons, like. But if you could, just stand up and just greet one each other uh, across the aisle and just behind you. Just shake hands and say, God bless you this morning. I don't want to not do that before we start here. So just take a few minutes and... and Yeah, I will. I will. Okay. I will. You I will. say, hey, you know, yeah. we just want to start this fellowship. We have it before and after. We just want to do it. Good idea. And thanks for your grace and forgetting, too. I ah, dude, it'll, all, it'll all come together. I'm dude, it's very smooth. Yeah. Very smooth. Yeah. I like it. I'm sorry. Sorry, Sherry. I forgot her name. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, I forgot. No, I didn't put it in there. Oh. I didn't. Oh. Oh, I thought you did. Okay. <laughs> oh. Good morning. Doris. Doris. I gotta have my hug. All right. We can begin now, brother. Okay, I got my Doris hug. We're good. All right. And, and one of the things as we move forward, um, you know, uh, obviously Communion Sunday is a, is, a, is a day that kind of is a longer service than normal. Um, so I, I would encourage you to fellowship before church too and fellowship after church. We're going to have to, we're going to come up with some ideas, you know, having some coffee and things like that in the future. And if you have any ideas on that, just, you know, just an opportunity for us to talk beyond. And I know it naturally happens organically, um, but uh, just uh, we want to encourage that. Take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. When I was candidating for the position of pastor here, I, I have my reservations about the process. Um, having been here for as long as I have, and Jonathan Wiggins wanted us to go through this standard process as if a person that we've never known, never heard of, would go through the process. And initially I thought, ah, gosh, you know, that just seems a little much. However, uh, he convinced me, Tim, when you go through the process, then it allows you to know that this is truly from the Lord. And it was, and it was a good process. And I want to thank the search committee and the governing board and all of you, the body of Christ. Um, but when I was going through that process, somebody from the search committee asked me, he goes, what's your vision for the church? And so what I did, and for those that don't know what a vision is, is what you want to accomplish, what you see in the near future or in the long term, what you would like to see the church become or whatever it is that you're establishing a vision statement for. Now, as you know, within the bulletin, you'll see the denominational vision statement and you will also see the denominational mission statement. And they are very sound, very good. I like them. And, um, and in the past, we have... Uh, entertain local small church vision and missions uh, statements, and uh, they have their place. Sometimes they can be overdone and, and things of that nature if anybody's ever dealt with strategic planning. and Sometimes we rely too much on the process and not on the Holy Spirit to direct us. And so at times you could get too involved in that, but we do have a vision and we do have a mission for this church. 
And I would venture to say that Scripture is very clear on what the vision is of the church. In Matthew chapter 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. It's what we're called to do. And come, Lord Jesus, now. Amen? Amen. I would have no problem with him coming in the middle of this sermon and not allow me to finish it because it would be great to see the Lord return. And we wait for that. We anticipate that. We pray for that. And the mission of the church is also set, Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our mission. It never changes. Know what I want it to change. That should be on our hearts every day. Does that person know the gospel? Does that person know Jesus? Where's Chris at? Where's Michelle? Where's John? Where's their heart? And do I have an opportunity to share that heart? You have the greatest story ever told in your life, your transformation by Jesus Christ. Share it. Live it out. Make it attractive to other people who desires to know the truth. Why do you have peace? Why do you have this assurance in the midst of of turmoil and instability. Well, let me share with you the greatest story that ever happened to me. That's our mission. But in light of these, I took heart to the question that was asked to me, and I went to prayer and meditation, and I thought about it. And I thought about the history of the church. I've been here for a while, since 1994. I thought about the culture of the church. You know, again, at times, culture can be overdone, but each church does have its own culture. I look back on the experiences of the church and what we've went through, times of growth, times of separation, difficulties. We had a meeting on Thursday with the elders for the first time together, and I told my elders, I said, no matter what we face, whether we hear of someone leaving the church or someone having a really significant problem or there's an issue with a member of the church or people speaking against the church or victories that we have, baptisms, Whatever the case might be, no matter what victories or what trials and tribulations we face as a church, when we leave this room as elders, we're leaving unified in Christ. And we're going to face it together. And we're going to face it together. And so I took, all, I took stock in all of this. And what kept coming up are these three themes. The three themes for my vision for the church, for this church. Now, before I give you these three themes, I want you to know that these are not going to be this deep revelation. So when I share with them with you, you're not going to be going, oh. and there's a reason for that, because they're consistent themes that need to be in the church. They're consistent themes that are spoke about in the Word of God. They're consistent themes that we see coming up time and time again from Paul's letter, from Peter's letter, from Hebrews and the like. So what is the vision for this church? What is the vision that I have for this church that I pray for, for this church? Like I said, it's made up of three key themes. And those are unity, maturity, and community. Unity, maturity, and community. And over the next three weeks, I'm going to speak on each one of these as my topic for my sermon and so this morning, what I want to talk to you this morning is about unity. 
unity in the body of Christ. What is unity? Webster's Dictionary defines unity several ways, with this definition being the one that's so striking to me, and that is the quality or state of not being multiple, of being multiple, or not being multiple, my bad, or oneness, or oneness. And the reason why I find this striking is because when you look at the New Testament word for unity, it's defined as oneness. It's defined as oneness. In fact, it comes from the Greek word harmonious. I think we've all heard of that term, harmonious, and that means oneness. And the best scripture to speak about this is the scripture that we're going to be addressing this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're there at Ephesians chapter 4, go down to verse 4, and I'll read verse 4 through 6. And I'm reading out of the ESV version, so it might sound a little different. But in verse 4 of chapter 4, Ephesians, it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What Paul is describing here, within just these two verses, is the seven unities of the church, or as I like to call them, the foundational unities of the church. In fact, one of the themes that you see in Ephesians, the letter from Paul to the church of Ephesus, is the unity in the church among its diverse peoples. And the letter is calling the church of Ephesus to unity in Christ. And to a larger extent, all churches in Christ. You see, Paul understood what made up his church. Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, barbarians, bond servants, and their masters, male and female. We're a diverse group. In many different ways. And yet we're called to be unified in Christ. And it's the unity of Christ that bonds us together. I remember sitting at a meeting next to an individual. I never met him before in my life. We're sitting in a staff meeting. And the next thing you know, I just looked over him. I have a a real sense of who this person was, although I never met him. And so we started talking. And he was a lawyer from JAG. Not the show, but the office there at Monad Air Force Base. And we started talking, and I immediately sensed there was a kindred spirit. Not in the things that we like, there was a connection there. And I said, uh, I said, you're new here. He goes, yeah, do you have a church? He goes, oh, yeah. And I can't remember what church he said he went to. And imme- within five minutes of sitting down, we were talking about Christ. Only in Christ can that happen. I have brothers in Christ who hold to different applications of certain doctrines. I know pastors that lead churches exercising gifting differently than we do. There are churches that have different liturgical flows, different orders of service, different histories, different cultures. During my sabbatical, I was given the opportunity to visit churches here in Minot and outside of Minot. And in every single church that I visited, they were different than us in how we do things. Some was different in the application of doctrine, but they were all in common with what I just read out of Ephesians chapter 4. 
They were one. And we are one with them. I've always said this, and I, and I hold to it. This is doctrine. This is truth. This is uncompromising. This is methodology. This changes. Different ways. We can never confuse the two. Or combine a methodology as a doctrine. That's when we get in trouble. That's when we get in trouble. I think to better understand what unity is, we got to understand what unity is not. First, unity is not universalism. Universalism is a philosophical and theological position that believes that all souls are saved by the work of Christ on the cross, irregardless of whether they place their faith in Jesus Christ. It comes from a social theology and, a and not a doctrinal truth to where people believe that God who created His creation and loves them, as the Word of God says, would never condemn them to a life of separation and suffering. That's humanistic thinking. That's absent of the truth of the Scriptures. God desires all to be saved and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where His heart is. But we know that not everyone is saved. And that should break our heart. Universalism is not scripturally true. There are consequences to not believing in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it's working its way in the church. Well, Tim, how do you know that? How many of you have ever been to a Christian funeral where the individual who is being remembered never darkened the door of a church, never made a confession of faith, never lived a day for the Lord, and yet you hear they're in a better place? Brothers and sisters, separate from Jesus, living in hell for eternity is not a better place. And it's tough. Those funerals are tough. And for any of you that went to a funeral of a non-believer, it's tough compared to a funeral where you're celebrating a life of a person who lived for Christ. Yes, there's sadness because of their departure, but there's rejoicing in the fact that they're now in the presence of the Lord. And you should desire that for everyone. Unity is, not, is also not uniformity. Uniformity is defined as everything being the same or the quality and state of being uniform. You know, when I went into the military years ago, I'm not going to tell you how far, they shaved my head, they gave me new clothes, they told me what to say and how to say it, they told me how to walk, they told me what I could do, what I couldn't do. And for anybody that's ever served in the military, I thank you for your service, having celebrated Veterans Day last Thursday. But they told me everything I needed to do. And even though we were from different cultures and different ethnicities, when you shave a person's head and you put on a uniform, because they segregated us back then, they wouldn't let us be with the women and the women wouldn't be with us. And of course, they didn't shave women's heads. Y'all kind of look the same. With that shaven head and the uniform and you walk and you're all sized up, y'all look the same. I remember going in and getting my hair cut, and I'm looking at the mirror. I had long hair. I had a mullet. No, I'm not going to rock it in the future. But there was guys there with afros. There was guys there with long hair. There was guys there that already had a haircut and said, hey, man, I'm good. And they, No, you're not. And they, they took us all down to stubble. 
And we all went in looking different. We all came out looking the same. I couldn't help but remember, keep looking at the mirror going, oh my gosh, look at me. There's dents in my head. And a scar I had never seen before when I got when I was a child. Anyway, I digress. But the thing about uniformity, it's a change from outside, but it never changes the inside. You see, when we would get new troops up here, and those that have ever supervised new troops in the Air Force, you know this to be true. You get this new troop. He's just been through basic training, been through tech school. He's all pro-Air Force. And then we start to really get to know the person. And they start making mistakes. I've had airmen that would come in the Air Force sharp as a tack coming out of training. And in two years, they were separated from the Air Force because of poor decisions. You see, that's what uniformity does. It changes you from the outside but it never reaches the inside. Conversely, Christian unity changes you from the inside out. That is why we're admonished to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, meaning to work out that which God has already done inside of you in every facet of your life. That's what allows us to be unified in Christ because that change happened in your heart. And it's now working out. And for everybody in here, you're at different levels of that working out of your salvation. Some are mature. Some are being come mature. Some are new babes in Christ. I'm going to be speaking about that next week when we talk about maturity. You know what happens when you put on, as Paul says, put on Christ without a change inside of your heart? Religion. And you become nothing more than a Pharisee. I lived a large part of my life as a religious person with never having a heart changed for Christ. I thought I was okay. thought I was going in the right direction. thought because of the church that I belonged to, I was good to go. Then the Lord showed me truth. The Holy Spirit wooed me into the presence, convicted me of my sin and unrighteousness, showed me the truth of my error and my sin, and forever changed me, praise the Lord. Thirdly, truth is, can never be absent of truth. Or third, unity can never be absent of the truth. There is a push today for unity within the body of Christ, but it's coming at the expense of truth and compromise. Spurgeon had this to say because he faced the same thing. This is what he said. To remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one? He's obviously quoting John chapter 17, verse 22. A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping unity tune. What are they saying? Christians of all doctrine, shades, and beliefs must come together in one visible organization. Regardless, unite, unite. Such teaching is false and reckless and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's prayer in chapter 17 must be read in its full context, Spurgeon goes on to say. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word of God can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is a betrayal of the gospel. Now, it may seem contradictory to say on the one hand, we all need unity, while on the other saying there are conditions to that unity. But truth must be the basis of unity. Unity at the cost of truth is not unity. 
It's compromise. And it's for the sake of worldly acceptance. And I just want to prepare you as a body where this is going in this country. I'm not saying anything you don't already know. Within the last 20 years, we have seen major denominations split over social issues. And the world has accepted their changes because that's what the world wanted them to do. And they heavily influenced them. And there's going to be a time where churches who stand on truth, like this one and many others in this community, are going to start to become judged, labeled, and ostracized with all kinds of vile things because we don't hold to the social shifts of our day because we hold to the truth of God's Word. In my fear, it's already happening. Which brings us to this. Why is it necessary to have unity? Simple question, but one we need to dive into. Well, first, at the very heart of who God is, is unity. The very heart of who God is, is unity. In fact, there's a doctrine that describes it. It's called the doctrine of simplicity. And the doctrine of simplicity positions that God is not made up of multiple parts. And it's important to understand this because at times we segment God into the parts that we like. Do we not? God is a God of love we say. He's also the God of justice. God is a God of mercy. Yes, but He's also a God of judgment. God is a God of patience. Yes, but He's also a God of discipline. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God is not segmented. He is unified in who He is. And at the very heart of his unity is the Trinity. 1 John 5, 7 says this, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, for those people who say there's no evidence of the Trinity in Scripture, I don't know how you get past that verse. And because God is one, He calls upon His church to be one, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4. That wasn't just for the church of Ephesus. That's for the church of Christ. And within these few verses, Paul not only highlights the oneness of God, but admonishes the church to be the same for three reasons. One, we need to be a reflection of Christ in the community in which we live. This community, where this church is right now in Minot, needs to know that Calvary Alliance Church of Minot is a church that believes in the truth of Jesus Christ, and we share Him in our daily lives. We want to know Him and to make Him known, which is, I love that mantra. It also means that we need to be effective in the world, effective in our witness, effective in our ministry. Effective in our service. Effective in our witness. And the third reason why Paul is admonishing this is because, guess what? Unity is fragile. It needs to be approached intentionally, with purpose. 
It needs to be maintained in the bonds of peace. It's amazing how fragile it is. And in all my years of being in this church and talking to other pastors in other churches and other members in other churches, how many splits? Thank God this church has never went through a split. But I know churches that have. Unity is fragile. And we must work at it. A church that is not unified in Christ is an ineffective church. It may do church well. It may do music well. It may have all kinds of programs for all kinds of ministries. But if it is not unified in Christ as a body, it's not a body in Christ, then it's not operating in Christ, and it will not be effective in Christ. Because at the heart of it is Christ. I don't think I can talk about unity without talking about what causes disunity so that we're aware of it. Now, some would say, well, disunity is caused by men following men. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, right? Where some were following Paul, some were following Paul, others said they were following Christ. Because of our fallen nature, we're susceptible to that. There are those that, in churches, try to develop their own little church within the church. A pastor in one of the churches that I visited said this in his sermon, and I thought it was, I had to steal it, so I'm citing it. If you want to know who said it, I'll give you his name. He said, there's two types of people who come to church. Those who support the vision of the church and the elders, and those who have their own and desire to implement it. Some people might say, it's because of selfishness, Philippians 2, 13, 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That certainly can work its way into the church and cause disunity. Some people may say out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, jealousy and strife. Well, that happens. If you don't think it happens, look at the 12 disciples. They were arguing on the road about who would be the great. Right in front of Jesus. When I first read that, I was like, whoa, what is Jesus going to do? What did you tell him? He who desires to be first shall be last. He who desires to be last shall be first. He exemplified that. How about Romans 12, 16? Haughtiness. You know what that means? That's setting your mind in honors on riches and wealth and status, which leads to elitism. I'm better than you. I can't speak to the lowly people. Or maybe it's control. Maybe we want control. Maybe we want our little, little area of control. We want to control everything. I remember Pastor Nigel talking about a lady in the church that he had previously pastored who was, who was involved in every single aspect of the church and would not relinquish control in any of it. And it became a very disunifying element in the church. And he had to deal with it. Very difficult situation. Others might say it's a lack of love. And I would agree. Love is essential in all things. But brothers and sisters, these are not the reasons for disunity. They're symptoms of disunity. They're symptoms of disunity. The greater issue, and there's only one reason why there's disunity in the church, in our relationships, and even in our relationship with Christ. Colossians 1, chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, Paul writes this. 
And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. When this church or any other church has disunity in the body, or when your personal relationships, such as marriage, have disunity, or your friendships have disunity, or your walk in Christ have disunity, there is one reason why this happens. Christ is not the center of it. You are. Christ is not the center of it. You are. I like what A.W. Tozer says about being Christ-centered. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? I didn't know that. They are all of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in the heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. And why is that? Because we are one in Christ. We are all tuned by Christ. So keeping Christ as the center of the church and our relationship is key to unity. And that's how we achieve it. But achieving it is one thing. Maintaining it is another. So how do we maintain the unity in the body of Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, once again, gives us the answers. And these come from verses 1 through 3. And the first one that you'll see in verses 1 through 3 is humility. Practicing humility. Humility is often characterized as a genuine gratitude and a lack of arrogance. A modest view of oneself. Webster's Dictionary defines it as a freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. Spiritually, a humble person knows they are forgiven, a sinner by grace, and remembers that. A humble person does not desire the limelight or needs to be the first, or always wants to be recognized for what they do. The greatest example of humility is found in none other than Jesus Christ, who in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, listen to this. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who thought he was in the form of God, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, be humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mothers, that's, sisters, that's the example of humility. Christ purposely lowered Himself to serve you and I and to go to that cross for you and I. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride means to be puffed up and having a high opinion of oneself. 
Pride, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, pride always strikes on an independent line with an independent spirit, with an independent agenda. And that is why pride cometh before the fall, because at the very heart of pride is disunity. Pride is often spoken against and rebuked in the Word of God because it stands as an affront to God, because it elevates the person and not the Lord. The second that we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 is gentleness, which means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, meekness. Nothing creates disunity more than an aggressive person who demands their way. A gentle spirit is a non-controlling spirit. A gentle spirit is one who is slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. A gentle spirit is one who has a soft answer in response to a harsh word, thus bringing peace to the situation. A gentle spirit is a meek spirit in which it is confident in who they are in Christ with no desire to elevate themselves at the expense of another. A gentle spirit is one that is not interested in building their own little kingdoms here on this earth or in the church, but building up the kingdom of heaven. Mark 9.34 says this, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Next is patience. Patience here in the context of this verse means slowness in avenging wrongs. People are people. And we all have the potential of saying offensive and harsh and rude things. I recall having a dinner with a couple one day and... The, the spouse of the man was throwing zinger after zinger after zinger at her husband. It was very uncomfortable. And for those of you here last week, Jonathan actually talked a little bit about this. And after every zinger, I looked at the man to see his reaction. And not one time did he ever go. Not one time did he go. Not one time did he say, that's enough. No, I don't know what happened when they went home. But the meekness demonstrated by that man, the patience demonstrated by that man was impressive. And obviously there are some deep-seated issues there that need healing. But that's what it means to be patient. Paul knew that be patient with the body of believers was key in maintaining unity because we do say some very offensive things at times or maybe in the wrong manner or maybe in the wrong tone or maybe in the wrong spirit. I hope if you find yourself in the midst of receiving those zingers that you too would exercise meekness and patience. Remember what Psalms 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Take stock in who's saying it. They may be an immature babe in Christ. And if it's offensive enough, then we already know what Matthew says. Go to that person. Reveal to them the offense. And if they don't receive it, then take another one with you. And the purpose and the intent is to restore that person in love. Not to prove yourself right. Right? 
Amen, sister. <laughs> the last one is love. Love. And the love that Paul is using here is not Philadelphia love. It's agape love. And agape love is sacrificial love. Now, we know what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant, and it is not rude. It does not listen, or it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Now, everything I've just talked about before that, does not the definition of love out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 address that? That's love. That's love. Some of you might say, but Tim, I can't, I can't love like that, especially to that person over there. Remember what John wrote. We love because he first loved us. That's how you can love others that are difficult to love. It's because he first loved you. He showed you what that love is. And guess what? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives you the power to love those difficult people. I'm not saying it's easy, but through Christ, you could do all things through him. And we must love. And I know it's hard at times, and that's why Jesus commanded it. Paul admonished it, and Peter continuously reminded us to love. That's the centrality of being a believer in Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for you as a demonstration of His love. But Tim, how do we do that, right? I know we're, we can love because He first loved us. You know what the key to loving others is? Take the focus off you. Get out of the way. Set aside your demands, your requirements, and just love. And if the body of Christ loves with a pure heart and a pure motive, as we are called to do, then we'll be unified in Christ. And the enemy can't do anything against that. Because the enemy doesn't operate in love. He despises it. And it's our greatest weapon. So brothers and sisters, unity is essential in the body of Christ. It's fragile. It requires sacrifice to keep and maintain. And it reveals the true body of Christ. And as one of the greatest expressions of unity that we have is what we're about to celebrate. And that is the Lord's table. And so if I could have the elders and those that will assist in the communion table come forth. 